Margin the Podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin the Podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Learn more about Osiris and check out all their podcasts at OsirisPod.com. In this episode of Across the Margin of Podcast, I present an interview with author and political organizer, Doug Greco. Doug has organized for over 15 years in Austin and San Antonio with the Industrial Areas Foundation, the nation's largest and longest standing network of faith and community-based organizations, and also as director of programs with Equality California, the nation's largest statewide LGBTQ organization. His book, To Find a Killer, The Homophobic Murders of Norma and Maria Hurtado and the LGBT Rights Movement, is the focus of this episode. Despite monumental gains in legal equality over the past decade, the LGBTQ community still faces harsh disparities in physical and mental health, economic status, racial stratification, and hate crimes victimization. These factors compound for LGBTQ persons of color, low-income individuals, immigrants, and members of the transgender community. In To Find a Killer, a finalist in the Writers League of Texas 2021 Manuscript Contest for Nonfiction, Doug explores the next phase of the LGBTQ rights movement and how issues of race, class, sexuality, Gender identity and economic status often intersect, producing negative outcomes for members of the LGBTQ community. Beginning with a gripping first-hand account of the 2011 anti-gay murder of 24-year-old Norma Hurtado, a student the author taught in an Austin high school 10 years earlier, To Find a Killer employs a mix of narrative nonfiction and political analysis to uncover the intersectional nature of the disparities impacting the LGBTQ community. Drawing from his 15 years experience as a grassroots organizer in Texas and California, Doug argues for the types of political organizations and public policies necessary to address these challenges. To Find a Killer charts a robust but pragmatic course for the LGBTQ movement today, exploring ideas about investing in grassroots leadership development rooting organizations in local civic and religious institutions and focusing not just on legal equality, but a wider set of socioeconomic issues. So in this episode, Doug and I dig into some of the specifics of the case and discuss the motivations of the murder that go beyond homophobia. We talk about how the town of Dove Springs reacted to what happened and how that speaks to the positive reaction that occurred following a terrible 2011 for the LGBTQ community. We discuss some ideas that could act as solutions for the ongoing LGBTQ rights struggle and so much more. It was such a pleasure to talk to Doug about this. This uh, book kind of came to life as uh, the first time he wrote about it was for Across the Margin, an article that is the first chapter of this book. So we are very, very proud of our connection to this book and to this story. And I have no doubt you will enjoy this interview with Doug Greco. podcast doug welcome to the program thank you so much it's really it's an excellent book uh it's important it's sparking uh 
you know, it's talking about important things we really need to be discussing. And I'm, honestly, I'm really proud of the connection it has to Across the Margins. So thanks for coming on the program. Absolutely. Um, glad to be here. And, and yeah, I, I really appreciate kind of the looking back, I think, to 2020 when mm-hmm. uh, a piece of this book was 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 first published in Across the Margin um, and, and have appreciated the you know, the relationship since then. Yeah, same. Absolutely. So I think some listeners, um, you know, might not know the case might, that, that's at the center of the book um, and might just kind of want to kind of uh, uh, run along with us without knowing everything that's in the book. So I think a, a good place to start would to um, generally speak uh, about the case and, and, and the murder uh, at the center of the book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So um, the, the Hurtado murders um, happened on April 18th, 2011. And, and to put that in context, um, at the time I was living in Austin, um, I, I do uh, um, community organizing, uh, worked with an organization called Austin Interfaith, and we were organizing in a neighborhood called Dove Springs. And one of the issues was around community safety. And there was kind of a spate of um, um, uh, there, several um, uh, murders in the neighborhood. Um, and so that, that was kind of my, my one connection I had to the kind of the, the, the context of the time. Um, also at the same time, there was, um, this was 2011. It was, there were 30 anti LGBT uh, murders um in that year and it was the largest number since records were kept and that in, followed in the country, is that correct in the country yeah, yeah. yeah um and and that followed um remember in 2010 in the fall of 2010 there was a spate of lgbt deaths by suicide by young adults and and lgbt youth and mm-hmm. it was kind of kind of dubbed the september suicides and there were there was just a, a spate of them so this was but also the context in terms of the LGBT community, a pretty, you know, uh, you know, a pretty dire time, horrific time. There was just mm-hmm. Prop 8 in California had passed um, uh, at long same-sex marriage in 2008. Yeah. And so, so, you know, in April, um, you know, that that's kind of the broad context. So um, what happened was... Um, Specifically, on, on it was about seven o'clock in the evening, April eighth. Um, I'm sorry, it was about seven o'clock in the evening on April eighteenth, two thousand eleven. Mm-hmm. And um, men in his 40s, Jose Aviles, approached the front door of the Hurtado household, and and this is in Dove Springs, which is one of the poorest neighborhoods in in Austin, southeast mm-hmm. Austin. His family lived there, and um, his daughter um, Lydia Avilas is in a relationship with um, another young woman, Norma Hurtado. Um, and Lydia at the time is eighteen, and Norma is twenty-four. And there had been a series of over the past year threatening text messages and threats that Jose Avilas had made towards Norma. Um, because he did not approve of his daughter Lydia's relationship with Norma. In fact, they were in a lesbian relationship and um, had sent uh, threatening text messages. The police were brought in a few times. There were complaints made. 
And so this had been going on, you know, over the past year. Um, and and on, on April 18th, he approaches the door. Um, he's intoxicated, according to police reports, knocks on the door. And um, and Maria Hurtado answers the door. Maria is Norma's mother. Um, it's also in her, her 40s at the time. And 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 Avilas asks for his daughter. And um, Maria yells to the back room in the house where Norma and, 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 and Lydia are. And, and instead of Lydia coming to the door, Norma comes to the door to kind of, you know, you know, in, in kind of deal with, with Lydia's father. Yeah. When she comes to the door, Avilas pulls out um, a gun, handgun, and shoots Norma. 15 times 15 oh. times is just unbelievable to me the the the, the hate they they just kind of the the feelings that must have been going through and we'll get into motivations too but it's just yeah. unbelievable that that he unloaded in that way when he was um you know, eventually caught and questioned he said he would have continued shooting had he had more bullets in his gun no remorse no remorse yeah there was no there was no yeah, they were essentially admitted to the murder as soon as he was yeah. was caught. And at the same, at kind of towards, as as Norma is being shot, her mother Maria steps in front of Norma to try to shield her, which is which is beautiful too, which is amazing. Yeah, and uh, and Avila shoots her in the neck, severs an artery, and she dies as well. And I just, um, yeah, it's just the the. Um, and the image of the mother trying to protect her daughter and and giving her life as well is pretty um, traumatic. And then and then and then Lydia comes to the door, obviously, you know, distraught, screaming, and finds both Norma and Maria uh, dead. And then the police are soon after called in. Yeah, what's well, um, it's it's uh, you have a unique relationship to one of the victims, and and I mean, being a you you taught um. Norma, at one point, you were a teacher of her. It must have been, and, and not to ask if it's, I hope it's not too personal, but just I'm curious how it felt waking up, learning that, and, you know, just having that it happen to someone you, you knew and, and kind of affecting the community. Um, how was that? Yeah, so I, I remember one morning um, picking up the paper, and I had heard of another murder in Dove Springs and picked up the paper, and it was the front page. And so, you know, in my mind, okay, there's yet another murder in this community that yeah. we were organizing in. And we had yeah. had been doing kind of sessions with the police, community policing, and trying to build relationships. And then I saw the pictures on the front page. And I, I remember at the, at the time I was, my boyfriend was there yeah. that I was, I was with at the time. And I just said, I looked at the picture and I didn't put it together right away. I said, I know who this is. Mm. And it had been, you know, probably about 10 years since I had taught her. I taught 97 through 2001. So it was almost a decade or so since I had taught Norma. And then I read her name and I, I, I taught her. I've had her in class. And um, that just, you know, kind of st just, it was, a, it was a personal connection. You know, she was a student, you know, for a time with me. But it to see one of your students shot, it just... You know, you never remember a name. I mean, you never forget a name yeah, um, yeah. and a face of a student, no sure. matter how long ago. Um, so, 
So anyway, that that was my personal connection. I didn't know the family since then, but you know, it it um, um, it just kind of brought back that that personal connection. Yeah, I bet I bet hits home in, in a lot of ways to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, how the town or a neighborhood, I believe, of Dove Springs um, reacted to what happened? Because it kind of speaks to. And kind of that I'll follow. This will be a follow up question, but it uh, speaks to the larger reaction to similar murders across the country. So um, when this happened in Dove Springs, how did the community react to it? So, I mean, immediately after neighbors came to the door and it was yeah. just a, a literally a crime scene. And sure. uh, one of the, the folks that had uh, kind of given me background as I was I was researching the murder was the um, wife of a next door neighbor and 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 so you know folks were trying to put this together and at the same time within the next few days a lot of the lgbt groups mm-hmm. um and political leaders in town came together and, and rightly denounced it as a as a hate crime and it made you know all of all of the local media and even some of the national and lgbt papers and so this was yet another example of a hate crime in a year that there just seemed to be one after another kind of a, kind of a, a spate of these. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting to, um, you know, like I said, how it mirrors the kind of positive reaction, finding just a terrible um, 2011 for the LGBTQ community. Um, you talk about kind of what, how the nation was reacting and moving forward to public opinion changing overall and leading to some really good things in the community. I'd love to hear you talk about how the nation was reacting to reacted to what happened in that sure. year. So, I mean, one of the, the claims I make in the book um, is that the progress that happened over the next several years on LGBT rights, acceptance, public acceptance, mm-hmm. you know, culminating in, the Obergefell Supreme Court decision in 2015, um, um, legalizing same-sex marriage, and a, and a decision in 2013 overturning DOMA and the ban on same-sex marriage in California. That that a, there was a reaction to this period of 2010, the suicides, 2011, the murders, and you know not just in those two years. That in some ways it was a wake-up call, and there was a, a certainly kind of a, a, you know, a, a market reaction, LGBT organizations who had been working, you know, for, de- you know, obviously decades, some of them, but just really focused effort to overturn same-sex marriage bans through ballot initiatives first, and then legal cases. I remember kind of a, kind of the music industry, there was a bunch of celebrity coming out, Anderson Cooper, the It Gets Better movement. Yeah. Um yeah. And, you know, a lot of songs, you know, Katy Perry and, and Lady Gaga, there were all these kind of anthems coming out around acceptance. And, and it was just a, you know, I, I feel like a reaction in, in you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. And I, I talk a little bit about, you know, my personal kind of personal journey. Like a lot of people this period were, you know, who are from the LGBT community yeah. and allies were kind yeah. of spurred to, to do something. For me, it was I, I had not been working in the LGBT movement per se, and I had I had wanted to do that. Um, and I I stepped back and went back to grad school to really do some thinking and reflecting on my experience in organizing and what might I bring. So I, you know, I as well, you know, 
decided to become part of the movement, you know, um, and, uh, and eventually worked for a statewide LGBT group in California, uh, Equality California. But that's just kind of a personal example of what happened, I think, kind of writ large in the country. And I, I, I think that murders like the Hurtado murders were kind of like a wake up call to a lot of folks to yeah. that something had to be done. I, could, I couldn't agree more. It's, I think it's absolutely the case there. Um, let's get into the uh, intersectionality of it all, because it's really you really drive home something that that was very thought provoking to me, because this murder was not um, only about homophobia, a huge part of it, obviously, but there's more to it as you as you break down and, and break down in a really impressive way. Um, can you discuss a little bit how race and class um, is involved in this? And if you want to break those up, you know, race and class, sure. own, but either way that they, they, you know, they come into play here. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, right now kind of intersectionality is a, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a term that's, that's kind of used broadly and, and lots of LGBT organizations that is the focus right now. Um, and it occurred to me around the time of the murders that there was obvious, obviously this was motivated by hate, a hate crime, homophobia, but it also struck me that there were a lot of other factors at work mm-hmm. that, you know, if we could address them, it might, it might, you know, prevent kind of some of the causal factors, you know, in addition to homophobia. So Norma Dove Springs, as I said, is, is low income community, um, lots of immigrant families. Um, it's uh, uh, at the time, the high school was Johnston High School. It's now Eastside Memorial High School. Mm-hmm. That's where I was a teacher. Yep. Had just a uh, turnover in the time that I taught there. We had seven principals in five years. We had one of the highest teacher turnover rates and, and one of the highest dropout rates. Um, and, and you know, in, in kind of look, kind of thinking about this, there was, a, there was a guy named Doug Massey, who's a sociologist at Princeton, that had this framework that I thought was useful. And basically, he... You know, so Norma is um, from, you know, from a family that were immigrants um, from she was a manager at a Wendy's in a low income neighborhood. Um, She was a woman, Latina, and she was a lesbian. And when you look at each of these categories, each one, you know, you could look at, you know, health and economic inequalities or stratification and then. When you combine those, this is kind of, I'd like Doug Massey's thinking on this. When you combine those uh, disparities, you know, along the lines of race, class, uh, gender, sexuality, they multiply. And then when you add geography into it, a place like Dove Springs, where, you know, there may not be a lot of mobility out of Dove Springs, you know, um, um, and you're kind of locked into, into socioeconomically into a neighborhood where there's a lot of crime. So there, there. All of a sudden, you've got you've got a mix of factors that, um, you know, kind of at the very least contribute to negative health and economic outcomes. In terms of the in terms of the kind of the murder, I also look at the perpetrator and tried to look at some hate crimes uh, research and and three things. You know, thinking about Jose Avilas. Yeah, I was going to ask you know, next he, about the motivation yeah. of his murder. Really explain what you're talking about, and that's where you're going with this, right? The motivations for yeah. why he did what he did. Yeah. So, so um, 
you know, in looking at the perpetrator, Jose Avalos, I tried mm-hmm. to look at some of the hate crimes literature and what does that tell us? What and, and this is, you know, this is me just trying to place this particular, the particulars of, of the, these murders in, in the context of some of this. And one yeah. is, um, you know, so, sometimes hate crimes can be um, exacerbated when there's a community that feels a relative loss of or, or a relative um, lack of power vis-a-vis yeah. the larger society. And yeah. so Jose Avilas was... power. They actually think they're losing power. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, and that's another component of it is... So, so, so Jose Avilas is, is, uh, is, an, is an immigrant. He goes to an evangelical church, probably more conservative yep. views on homosexuality at a time in which, you know, notwithstanding some of the, you know, the bloodshed I talked about yep. in, in terms of the, the nation, there's still a progress towards acceptance of, of LGBT. And Norma is in Austin, which is a fairly progressive city. Yep. She goes to a high school in which there's a magnet program and there's lots about students and both from the neighborhood program and from the, the magnet program. But those things could have been kind of rubbing up against each other. The Norma is very out. Lydia is obviously going through this process of being out. Um, and Jose Avilas is from an evangelical church, a more conservative, traditional. And, and then the, the third thing is, you know, that there's evidence that hate crimes happen when... Um, you know, when economic factors exacerbate it. And so you have Austin, which is kind of a very bifurcated economy, high-tech jobs, high-end jobs. And then those who are, you know, in the service sector, construction sector, very low income. And so, you know, economic factors can also contribute. So I'm surmising that there's a mix of these factors kind of changing societal acceptance, Jose Avalos being from a more traditional kind of worldview and then also kind of these economic pressures may have created you know some kind of powder keg that just you know um boils over so i basically say you know we've got to address homophobia you know individuals are responsible for their own actions but if you can address some of these larger disparities would that then reduce the number of hate crimes and that's the case that i make not to not to escape anyone's individual culpability, but to say if the evidence is showing that more hate crimes are happening when these disparities exist and they intersect, what if we address those? Yeah. Yeah. And that leads us right to what I want to talk about next, just kind of just some some other solutions and other ideas you had in there. Um, we just kind of touched on how, um, you know, Jose's kind of, uh, uh, you know, his religious um you know, kind of conservative viewpoints uh, led to to was one of the reasons that he that he was feeling the way he felt. You kind of talk about, and this was a little surprising and a little kind of hopeful to me. Um, the church as a solution. You say, I believe, congregations can have a central role in building the political power and leadership for the ongoing LGBT rights struggle. And I thought I'd love to hear you talk about this because I found this so interesting. Often I think about conservative churches as such a problem, but we're talking about how churches and the leadership within churches could be a solution. How so? So, you know, just by way of context, I did end up working in the LGBT movement and did Mm -hmm. some writing during this period. I come out of, you know, for over a decade had worked with with the IAF, which is the largest network of faith and community-based organizations in the country. And so, I come out of the context of organizing coalitions of churches and unions and other community organizations. 
And, you know, with the belief that civic and religious institutions are key to any, you know, organizing effort for a number of reasons. Number one, at their best, and we know that this is, you know, can often be kind of mis misused, misinterpreted, but at, you know, at, at these traditions at their best are about justice, neighborliness, yep. treating love. others with compassion. Yep. That's right. And love. And so, yep. you know, and there's a whole, there's a, there was a whole movement of, of LGBT affirming churches mm -hmm. in this, you know, during this time to today, a lot of the denominations have become more inclusive. Yep. Um, but also it's a place where people are formed and people develop and in, in organizing, you know, you know, often, you know, you look at the civil rights tradition, you even look at the LGBT rights movement, that, that there's a tradition, a strong tradition of churches um, uh, developing leaders that that become become active. And and so and they're rooted in communities and they're close to communities. And so that, that you know, is, issues will tend to be responsive and reflective of local communities. So I make the case that looking forward, the more that we can we can root the LGBT movement in 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 local civic and religious institutions that know their communities in which leaders emerge from these institutions, that we're going to be you know kind of in the best position to really, as uh, Irva Shivad, you know, a longtime LGBT rights leader, says, getting rid of and undoing legal barriers to equality is only mm -hmm. one step, but insufficient. What that leaves intact is people's, there's still prejudices that exist mm -hmm. and there's still these economic and social and gender inequalities that exist. And so, you know, working with churches is one way to begin to, to undo that bias and also tap into kind of a power base that can also address some of the economic, more economic and, and socioeconomic issues um, that are at play. Yeah, I thought that was really, really hopeful uh, to think about. And Kind of you discussed too, and I think you were just alluding to a little bit the idea of making sure the LGBT community has a has a place at the table politically. Um, that's important. Yeah. And not, it's not always been represented fully, and I mean you make great points how how important that is. Yeah. So you know, I guess that's the other the other piece is that you know, in Texas there were 140 anti-LGBT pieces of legislation. This session alone, over half in the country were filed in, in the five-month session in Austin. We are going and, and and some of them passed, five, six, seven of them passed. And so, you know, while hopefully we're on progress for a broader inclusion of rights, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. also kind of retreat and this history is cyclical as well. Yeah. Yeah, that the most important going back, yeah. That's right. And yeah. so the most important thing we can do is continually build organizations. And leadership, you know, organizations that develop local leaders that really have a place at the table, because we may we may lose a few fights on on some some legal equality rights, but if we continue to build power and continue to build coalitions and continue to build leaders and allies, then we always have a chance to to, to get those rights back. If we're not focused on building strong political organizations, leaders, and institutions, then that's when kind of the, the, the larger slate of rights is, is in greater danger. Yeah, yeah. Um, the book does end on some, some hope, and it's kind of what you were talking about, how, you know, if we could do it then, if we could make those, those positive changes after 2011, um, you feel, you know, we could, we could do it, we can, we can do it moving forward. And, and I thought that was super hopeful. But to all you were talking about, I was just curious about, 
do you still feel hopeful? I mean, it's it's just, it sounds like your thought is that we really just need we need to put the work in. It's 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 an ongoing fight for rights. Yeah, that that the fight is, you know, cyclical as well as progressive. Even uh -huh. though we think there's this arc and there is this arc towards there, it goes in cycles as well. Yeah. The day that the book was released, total, you know, just just a little bit of mark. The day that's June sixth. There was a murder in Austin of another twenty-four year old young lesbian woman, Akira Ross in wow. Cedar Park outside of Austin, shot outside of a gas station um, by someone who didn't know her, but was was yelling anti-LGBT, you know, hateful epithets at her, had yeah. overheard a conversation with her girlfriend. Now, that happened the day after the book was released. The day the book was released, the Human Rights Campaign declares the first ever national state of emergency for the LGBT community. So yes, these... Um, you know, the, the, this work is is just as or more important now than it's ever been. And I, I end the book by saying that the Human Rights Campaign 2021, there were 57 anti, um, not, not there were more than 57 anti-LGBT uh, murders, but just the transgender and gender non-conforming people alone, 57 murders in 2021. Yeah. And, and that's over and against 30 total from the LGBTQ community in the year of the Hurtado murders. So Obviously, addressing this these type of hate crimes is kind of an enduring fight. We're going to have to continue to 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 keep at. Yeah, always fighting for for those rights. I mean, even thinking in um, I live in New York City, and there's been two two very notable um, uh, homophobic murders uh, that occurred yep. recently, and it just you know it's kind of daunting to think about in such a place where so so much acceptance and and love occurs. Um, I do want to point out to the Listener, that we've only touched on, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a little bit of what's in the book. There's a great history of the LGBT rights movement in the book. I, I really appreciate how well you point out how awful the U.S. has been historically uh, when it comes to gay rights. It's just, it's, it's, it was daunting to think about. Just, I mean, you were talking about before 1960. I mean, you know, uh, the countries that that. We were worse than was just some of the countries that we we think about now as as having horrible gay rights and you know you talk about the the global fight for human rights now including LG, lgbt rights there's there's just a lot to chew on and a lot of uh, important material in there so it's a very important book i'm glad to talk about it here so i, I really appreciate it doug thank you uh for taking the time to talk about it and uh thanks for, thanks for this book it's fantastic I appreciate it, Michael. And I, I just want to say again, I appreciate Across the Margin for believing in this story and yeah. in 2020 um, publishing the the piece on the Hurtado murders because that really got the ball rolling that that helped lead to this book getting published. So much appreciated. Of course. It's, it's truly our pleasure. This, these are important stories you're telling and shining a light on it means a lot to us as well. So thanks again, Doug. Appreciate it. Thanks.
Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.